Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way, that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few, and few there be that find it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Good morning. dead already. <clears throat> so the, the title is No Better Way, Part 5. It's also a subtitle, Light in the Sanctuary, Light from the Sanctuary. And we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, it would be great if you would open there. And if not, there are Bibles in the pews you to use. So in previous messages, we determined that God's way is found in the sanctuary. His way of dealing with sin is found in the sanctuary. There we go. I think we're up and running. And that there's no better way than God's way. And he demonstrated how he is dealing with this issue of sin and salvation through the sanctuary. And we started in the courtyard. We took a journey through the courtyard into the holy place. And we looked at the furniture there. And we looked at those various articles of furniture. And we saw the spiritual meaning behind each one. And how it, 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 the implications to our lives. How each of those articles of furniture apply to our spiritual walk, our voyage for our forgiveness, our justification, and our sanctification. And today, uh, as we look into God's word, uh, especially here in Matthew 7, my prayer is that we would recognize the lessons uh, that we see and how they fit perfectly into the antitype of the sanctuary. And so we're going to dive into Matthew 7, uh, beginning in verse 13, but I want to have a short prayer before we do that. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you uh, for an opportunity to open your word this morning. We do not take it for granted. We realize in other parts of the world, uh, people could lose their lives for uh, having a Bible or reading scripture. And so as we do that now, we ask for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us to guide us into all truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So what Jesus shares here uh, really is packed. It's very insightful. And he begins with a wonderful invitation to accept him and his principles as the rule of our lives. And then he, and he says, enter in at the straight gate. It's an invitation. 
And so let's place this straight gate on top of the sanctuary. Uh, Just kind of superimpose it on there. And when you look carefully at the Old Testament instructions for the sanctuary, you can see that God is very particular and he is very uh, specific about the instructions and how things are to be conducted. And so uh, you could say that they're very straight and narrow, those instructions. And so let me ask you this. Could the sinner bring any old animal to the courtyard? No, of course not. What about the priest? Could he mix things up a little bit and, you know, do things in his order? Or did he have to follow the specific order that God laid out? Right, he had to follow a specific order, had to wear certain garments, had to wash a certain way. Uh, Very specific. God's way was non-negotiable, and you could say it was straight, and it was narrow. And then Jesus goes on, and he then immediately speaks about the wide gate. Uh, And notice that there must be something that's seemingly attractive about the wide gate uh, and the broad way, because many go in thereby. So there's got to be something or some things about it that seem attractive, or so many people wouldn't go that way. So the multitude will choose the downward easy path. Many will go in thereby for a multitude of reasons. Um, Many convince themselves that the way that they're going is okay. And it's sufficient. Sufficient to end the same way uh, as everyone else. So what's attractive about this wide road? And let's look at some of those Greek words there. So wide, that word in the Greek, it means spread out flat, open to a great extent. So you get a picture, uh, the word broad that's used there uh, in the received text, spacious and roomy. So you don't get a feeling that it's difficult in any way. It's wide open, it's flat, it's smooth, it's spacious. It's broad enough to accept everything and anything. Anybody can fit on that broad road and through that wide gate. And, you know, we see every day in this world, um, you see it in every aspect, really, corporate world and in the private world, at university levels, that um, anything goes. Everything's accepted. There's a moral compromise that the world has embraced, really, at every level. And it's distorted thinking um, to think that no matter how immoral it is, it must be included and even protected at the expense of, uh, you know, the, the rights and the freedoms of other people. In your face, a lot of this is. So secular humanism, it's that belief that as humans, we can determine morality aside from God. I will be my own moral compass. That's secular humanism. And self-fulfillment apart from God as well. And you see that in the world, right? The world tries to make all sorts of things attractive so that we can feel fulfilled. 
but it's all minus God. No need for the individual to search the word of God to learn what God's will is or the principles of God. And then relativism, the world is full of that. So what's truth for you may not be truth for me. There's no absolute truth. The world has embraced that. Our universities have embraced that. Certainly the public schools as well. It's broad enough to accept worldliness and selfishness and pride, dishonesty, immorality. There's room for every opinion, every false doctrine, all of man's immoral uh, inclinations, whatever he or she may desire. It all fits on the broad road. All of it fits. Every sexual deviance is accepted on the broad road. Every type of immorality, every type of entertainment, every type of dress, every hedonistic pleasure, all of that fits through the wide gates and the broad road. Every ambition, although it may be, in contrary, may be contrary to God's word, it all fits. Every ambition. And then, this is important for us as Christians as well, every man-devised method to save ourselves is welcome. Where we dare not tell somebody that they're wrong, even though their gospel is contrary to the Bible. It'll send millions to destruction, but it is welcome on the wide road. Every counterfeit that Satan creates, every counterfeit he peddles is welcome on the broad road. And you know, our sinful natures naturally turn to the path that is easiest. It's just natural for us. To just go, that's the easy way. Where's everybody going? That's the way that we would naturally, naturally go. And so there has to be a resistance on our part not to go the way of the world. And that requires self-examination. We have to look at our lives, every aspect, and say, am I doing what the world is doing? Or am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I... Am I strengthening every day my resolve to be more and more like Jesus? Or am I just following along with what the rest of the world is doing? And I'll have a question for you shortly uh, relative to that. So the path of least resistance is the one we have to watch out for. Most popular one. And you know, it's not that the wide road is without difficulty. Wide road has its pains and its penalties. Ellen White said this in Mount of Blessings, page 138 and 139. There are sorrows and disappointments. There are warnings not to go on. God's love has made it hard for the heedless and headstrong to destroy themselves. It is true that Satan's path is made to appear attractive, but it is all a deception. In the way of evil, there are bitter remorse and cankering care. So it's not without its troubles, the broad road, although it's seemingly attractive and easy to go that way. So we might think it's, it's pleasant to follow pride, worldly ambition, but the end is pain and sorrow. And it's eternal. You know, it's eternal destruction. If we... If we stay on that road, we will be lost. Jesus makes it very clear. It's the way that leads to destruction. The way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible says, but wisdom's ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths 
our peace. And then Proverbs 16.25, I'll start it, you finish it. There's a way that unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, right? So let's not let human reasoning determine if our way is right. Let the scriptures determine if our way is right. And so it talks about the straight gate um, in verse 14. And that word straight in the Greek, it means obstacles close about. And it uses the word narrow. And that means to crowd, to compress, or to squeeze and afflict. So you get this picture, polar opposites. The wide road is flat and it's broad and there's room for everything. And then you have this straight and narrow way that has obstacles. Pressing in, compressing, squeezing, and affliction is there. And maybe you've experienced some of that. Maybe when you became... Um, a Sabbath keeper, you felt that from family, friends, coworkers. Maybe that's already happened. It's going to happen, um, and it's going to get worse. So, you know, in the time of Jesus, um, the, the people of Palestine, they were surrounded by walled cities, and generally those cities were raised up on a plateau, and they closed the gates to those cities at sundown. And so if you were traveling from one place to the next, it was imperative that you made it to the gate of that city before they closed it. So you were journeying homeward at the close of the day, and you had to make haste up a difficult ascent. These roads were not paved and easy to travel on most of them. And you only had with you those things that were essential for your journey. And any loiterers were left outside the gate. There's some spiritual lessons there. She goes on, she says, There is indeed a wider road, but its end is destruction. If you would climb the path of spiritual life, you must constantly ascend, for it is an upward way. You must go with the few, for the multitude will choose the downward path. So narrowness, following Jesus, who is the way, it calls for us to deny self. There's really no way to stay on the narrow way without determined self-denial. And, you know, we can on occasion deny ourselves, and we've probably all done it, but do we, with determination, set out to deny ourselves what the world has to offer in order to inherit eternal life? Have you made that determination? Have you said, this is my goal? You know, people will set goals here in a few weeks. Uh, We call them resolutions. And they'll say, oh, I want to lose 10 pounds, or I want to quit smoking, or I want to do this, or I want to do that. And those are good things to do. But what's more important is a determination, a resolve that we are going to deny ourselves whatever it takes so that we can spend eternity with Jesus and with the ones that we love. We need to maintain our connection with Christ in order to do that. So this, uh, the majority are going down that broad road, 
And they are going to, their voices are going to crowd out our voices. Because we are a very small majority. Those that are on the narrow way, there's not many. If you look at the other parables that Jesus talks about, it's a, it's a small number. And so we will be encompassed, surrounded by voices that say, why are you being so uh, meticulous or such a fanatic? And why can't you just be like everyone else? And we're going to have this contrast where we're going to be inundated with what the world wants us to do and what other Christians want us to do rather than what Jesus says. Character between God's true followers and the majority is going to be uh, there's going to be a huge difference between the two. And so ask yourself this. Just asking yourself. When I encounter other people that are not members of my church, do they see something different in you? Do they look at you and say, Something different about that person. Maybe if they spend five or ten minutes with you, um, they have that feeling. They say, hmm. Maybe it's just the way that you respond to them or treat them, the way you work, uh, how you handle things when troubles come. Maybe it's the way you dress, I hope, or just your activities and how faithful you are to, to Sabbath-keeping, etc. Do people know that you're a Christian waiting and preparing for Jesus to come? Go to, chap- to John chapter 10, the Gospel of John chapter 10. And we're going to just read verse 9. It's going to be a lot of pressure to capitulate, yield to what the world wants us to do, to enter that broad way, a lot of pressure. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 9, he said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So there's a separation that has to take place, and it's a choice that you have to make, that I have to make individually. And, you know, uh, the younger kids, yeah, we make a lot of choices for them as parents and grandparents, but individually we have to make a choice. And by entering the straight gate, when you make that choice to do that, you are separating yourself, from the rest of the world. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't try to reach them or interact with them in a way and with the determination to try to share with them the truth. But in entering the straight gate, we're separating ourselves from the world because we're separating ourselves from all sinful indulgences. And so we're separating ourselves from the lost, while the lost separate themselves from Christ. And in doing that, they're separating themselves from you. There's a great separation that needs to happen. 
And then there's a polarization that the Sunday law is going to cause. Where there will only be two groups on this planet. Only two groups. The Sunday law will polarize the world. But right now we have to make a choice about which road we're going to walk on. And, you know, we're in the holiday season. We are going to be getting together with family and friends, you know. Um, Some of that is happening now, and it may happen through the month of December and on to the new year. And not all of them are walking the narrow way. And there's going to be some tests there. Are we going to go along with with the world, or are we going to uh, stand firm? We're going to be faced with choices, and we're going to have to be brave. We have to say, no, you know, I'm just not going to do that. Sabbath, these are Sabbath hours. We're, we're just not going to do that. We need to come out from among them and be separate. And they can learn. They can learn from you as well. They might call you a fanatic, but they're still learning. So Jesus goes on. He says, few there be that find it. The, the, the road that leads to life, the narrow way. And why is that? Because they don't desire to find it. Revelation twenty two seventeen. Whosoever will may enter in. It's a matter of the will. We have to des- decide and desire to do it. And then we may enter in. Do we have a desire? It's very important. It's the first step. To have a desire to say, I want to be on the narrow way. I want to be ready when Jesus comes. I want to be ready for what lies ahead. A time of trouble like never before. Isaiah 30, verse 21 says, And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. So we need to have spiritual hearing aids turned all the way up. Because the Holy Spirit is talking. As we, as we navigate through life, the Holy Spirit is trying, when we go to the right a little bit, He's trying to get us back on the narrow way. When we go to the left a little, He's trying to get us back on. But if we're not listening, we can just wander and wander and wander and think that we're okay. Because there are many that will tell you, you're fine. You're okay. Don't worry about it. Remember, God is very particular. That's why the, the way is narrow and straight. He has a, a kingdom for eternity where affliction will not rise up a second time. The only way that that's possible is by only allowing those into that kingdom that have the character of Jesus. And the character of Jesus is not formed, it is not found in the world. It's not found there. We have to have good ears to hear. And so as you're reading God's word, is the goal to read as many verses as you can? Or is it to dissect a particular verse or verses and see, God, what are you saying to me? And you're listening. And, and God's word is as powerful written as it is spoken. And if you let it, it will speak to you. And he wants to direct us on the narrow way. So now we're in the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, and we see Jesus 
our high priest, our compassionate high priest, and he is soon to leave there and to come back to this planet as king of kings and lord of lords. He's not coming as a babe in a manger to be abused. He's coming as the king of the universe. He's finishing his work there. You know, after the great disappointment, um, when the Adventists thought that Jesus was coming to the earth to take his people home and to cleanse the earth with fire, light from the sanctuary illuminated the past, the present, and the future for those Adventists at the time. And so they, um, they were disappointed. We call it the great disappointment. But they knew that God had led them and he doesn't err. He doesn't make mistakes. So they recognized that the mistake must have been theirs. And so they studied and they read scripture and they prayed and God revealed to them the mistake. It wasn't in, in the dates. They, the dates, they had worked those prophecies out. The, the issue was the event. They got the event wrong. But that disappointment could happen and Jesus could go from the holy place into the most holy place. And it really didn't matter at that time that they weren't aware of it immediately. And then God used that great disappointment to purify the church, the people. Because it was an amazing shaking a disappointment. And there were approximately 100 to 150,000 Adventists from all denominations. There were no Seventh-day Adventists at that time. And when this disappointment happened, that number was reduced to 50 approximately. Now that's quite a purification, isn't it? But it was necessary because God used that core group of people to build up the remnant church. And the Lord is going to purify his people again. And we need to be ready for that. So those prophecies, Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And the first angel's message there in Revelation 14, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Both of those pointed to Christ's work, his ministration, in the most holy place and the investigative judgment. And so that antitypical day of atonement, not the second coming of Jesus, is what took place on October 22nd, 1844. In uh, Great Controversy 424, Ellen White said, He is represented by the prophet Daniel as coming at this time to the Ancient of Days. She's speaking of Jesus. I saw in the night visions, and behold, she's quoting Daniel 7.13, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came not to the earth, but to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. That verse is speaking of Jesus entering into the most holy place to begin that work of blotting out sin, of the investigative judgment in the most holy place. It's vital to Seventh-day Adventists uh, that we know that. And the world needs to know it. And so we have a commission to reach them with that message.
So to enter into the heavenly kingdom for eternity, we must by faith enter into the most holy place and cooperate with Jesus in the work that he's doing now, which is the blotting out of sin. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start there in verse 1. I got started late today, so it's not my fault. I'm going to go a few minutes late, but God will keep you. So uh, Matthew 25, uh, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is speaking. He says, "Then Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels, With their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And afterward also the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. So we have this parable of the ten virgins. Many of us have heard this before. You may have heard a sermon or two. Uh, in the past about that. So they're all Christian believers. They're all Christians. Seventh-day Adventists, actually, or Adventists, because they are looking for the soon return of Jesus. And they're virgins because they profess a pure faith. They have pure doctrines that they base their uh, spiritual lives on. There's only two groups, notice, the wise and the foolish. And they that are foolish, that didn't take... Uh, They took their lamps, but they didn't take any oil. They had the Bible, but they had no oil. It's significant because the oil represents the righteousness of Jesus, the Holy Spirit coming upon a person and being accepted, and the development of Christian character. So five of the, the, the virgins had oil with their lamps. They had those things. They had the righteousness of Jesus by faith. They had uh, the Word of God, that's the lamp, right? And they had the Holy Spirit. They had accepted the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was guiding them. And as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's Word, they had developed a Christian, a Christ-like character. So simply put, these virgins were destitute, the foolish were destitute of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that changes character. He guides us into all truth. He, he uh, guides us into righteousness and of judgment. He does many things. He brings us to Christ, who is our righteousness. And he does other things. So they didn't have the righteousness of Jesus. Their characters were not refined. They got ready initially, they thought what they had was sufficient for the time and the delay. 
How many have been Seventh-day Adventists for 50 years? Could you raise your hand? 60 years. 70 years? Wow. 75? Praise the Lord. You know, um, I, I think about folks that have been Adventists for a long time like that, longer than I've been alive, and I say to myself, it could be easy to say, you know, the Lord, I've been expecting the Lord to come since I was a kid, and here I am 60 or 70 years later, and he still hasn't come. But I'm thankful that there's no scoffers here, that no one has given up, and we are making preparations sufficient for the delay, the apparent delay, by the way, um, and the time in which we live. If you're going to take a trip to California, I don't know how far it is, a couple thousand miles, 2,500 miles, I don't know. You don't put $5 worth of gas in your tank and head out on your journey, do you? No. But many Christians, that's how they function. $5 worth of gas in the tank, and I'm going to make it through. But that connection to Christ through His Word and, and through prayer and just that devotion to the Lord that builds us up is what's necessary. We're not able to set the Lord aside and compartmentalize Him and He's there when I need Him and on Sabbath, but the rest of the time, I'm just me making my own decisions. I'm determining what's moral in my life throughout the week and then I'll come close to the Lord on the Sabbath. It takes more than that for us to be sufficient to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So verse 4, it says, that, But the wise took no oil in their vessels with their lamps. And so if the oil represents the Holy Spirit, righteousness of Jesus, um, what is this short verse telling us? By implanting in their hearts the principles of his word, the Holy Spirit develops in us the attributes of God. The light of his glory, his character, is to shine forth in his followers. Thus, they are to glorify God, to lighten the paths to the bridegroom's home, to the city of God, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's from Christ Object Lessons. So, it, the Holy Spirit changes us and then we become a light to others, guiding them to Jesus and to eternal life. We don't take it, hold on to it, and keep it to ourselves. Very important. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. So there's a time of waiting. It intervenes and faith is tried. Who wants Jesus to come back right away? We do. We see the world. We're just like, ah, I just wish Jesus would come back. You know, it's one sad case after another. We all want him to come back soon. But there's a time of waiting because the Lord doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so, and because his people aren't ready, we're actually the reason for the delay. Verse 6, and at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. So this is the time between the National Sunday Law and the close of probation. And I want you to get this. At midnight a cry was made, the bridegroom cometh. This is the period of time from the National Sunday Law to the close of probation. 
It's a time of peril, a time of crisis. And so think about the days of Noah and Lot. It pictured the condition of the world just before a time of peril and crisis and destruction. And, and Noah was the messenger. And, you know, Satan's work is with all power of deception and unrighteousness, right? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And his work is plainly revealed. If we just look, we see he is working and it's increasing. Darkness, crime, all kinds of heresies in the church, outside the church. He's very busy. And he's leading the world captive, but his deceptions are leavening the church as well. Doctrines have come into the church, into our church, that are not biblical. Satan's behind that. The great apostasy will develop into darkness deep as midnight, we're told, impenetrable as sackcloth of hair. To God's people, it will be a night of trial, a night of weeping, a night of persecution for the truth's sake. But out of that night of darkness, God's light will shine. The Lord causes the light to shine out of darkness. That's when you notice how well your flashlight is when it's totally dark. You turn on like, wow, that's bright. Same thing is going to happen. As the world gets darker, what the Lord has to offer is going to just illuminate. Revelation 18.1, the whole earth will be illuminated with the glory of God. It's going to happen. As we see the world get darker, don't get discouraged. Recognize the end is near and the Lord is going to do his work. Now, do you remember in Genesis when at the very beginning, chapter 1, when the earth was, out f- with, was without form and void and darkness was on, uh, upon the face of the deep, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. That's going to happen again. And God's going to recreate in the hearts of those that are willing, He's going to recreate their hearts. Verse 7, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. So the announcement of the National Sunday Law is the pronouncement that wakes up Adventists. Because remember, they're sleeping because there is a delay in the coming of the Lord. The announcement of of the National Sunday Law is the announcement that wakes up Adventists. But it's too late then to make preparation. I'm just kind of giving you the punchline. It's too late for Seventh-day Adventists to make a preparation when the the National Sunday Law is announced. So if you're waiting for that to get ready, don't. It's too late then. You don't get ready for a test when the teacher slides it in front of you. Because the National Sunday Law is the test. In the foolish, verse 8, said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. The foolish didn't anticipate so long a delay, and they were not prepared. Verse 9, But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. In other words, go, get prepared. Go, you know, make preparation. But they're, they're unready, and sadly, it proves to be too late. 
to make preparation. And we see that from the parable. While they went to buy, in other words, to prepare, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. That's the close of probation. It's too late then. Now, for the world, when the National Sunday Law happens, it's not too late for them, because that's when the loud cry is, is heralded. And that's when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain hits us, hits the world, and then we go out with this message. But if we're not ready, it's too late to make preparation. But that's when the world hears us and they see it, and the people that you have witnessed to in voice and in action, they're like, ah, I remember he or she mentioned this Sabbath thing and this Sunday law was coming, and now it's here. And now they're open. It's going to be a great time for the world um, because they're going to see that God's people are going to stand firm no matter what comes. Verse 11, afterward also came the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So to be accounted as one of the wise, it's imperative that we cooperate with Jesus now. We need to seek his face. We need to separate ourselves from the world. Doesn't mean you go hide somewhere. But you don't, you don't get into familiar associations with the worldly. Right? You're to stand out um, as an as a alternative to what the world has to offer. A royal priesthood, a peculiar people. That's so important. We need to offer something different to those that are still open. We're gonna, we need to demonstrate and testify of the true character of God. You know, Satan's been painting a picture of God as a tyrant, as someone who tortures people for all eternity in the fires of hell for 70 years of bad behavior. And every bad thing that happens is an act of God, according to the insurance companies. The way of life is narrow and the entrance straight. If you cling to any besetting sin, you will find the way too narrow for you to enter. You know the monkey that reaches into the pickle jar and grabs a pickle, but he can't get his hand out of the jar? That's what she's saying. If we cling... To any besetting sin, the narrow way is too narrow. We won't be able to walk that way. Your own ways, your own will, your evil habits and practices must be given up if you would keep the way of the Lord. Remember, the the Lord's very particular. His way is straight and narrow, and few there are that find it. He who would serve Christ cannot follow the world's opinions or meet the world's standards. Ask yourself, am I trying to keep up with the world? Am I trying to meet the standard of the world? Or am I living a a, a simple life particular to the way God has laid it out according to his will? The road may be rough and the ascent steep. Difficulties here and there. Discouragement may press on you. We must still hope. But with Christ as our guide, we shall not fail of reaching the desired haven 
haven at last. Christ himself has trodden the rough way before us and has smoothed the path for our feet. And all the way up the steep road leading to eternal life, we, uh, there are wellsprings of joy to refresh the weary. Don't think that God is, is going to direct you to the narrow way and then abandon you. He is going to be there all the way. And he is willing to pour all heaven out to help you if you need it and you ask. So through God's grace and our own effort, because we do have to, there is an effort. We're not earning our salvation, but in order to stay on that that narrow path, we have to be overcomers. We have to make decisions. And those decisions are difficult. It's difficult sometimes to say no. We got to be conquerors in the battle with evil. And so remember, this investigative judgment, it is ongoing. Jesus, his desire is to blot out the sins of the repentant sinners. That means we must live in a state of repentance. We, We have to humble ourselves and go before God and say, Lord, is there anything in any way that I have sinned against you? And confess those sins and ask to be cleansed. And then the Lord is able to blot those sins out. They're no longer yours to worry about. They then go on the head of Satan, the scapegoat. And then Azazel has to pay the price for that. Christ died for our sins, but Satan ultimately bears the burden of those sins. If we give them to Christ. If we cooperate with the work that he's doing right now. And when all this work has been accomplished, the followers of Jesus will be ready for his appearing. The path of the righteous is as the light of dawn that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. That's Proverbs 4.18. So we can't be ready to meet the Lord by waking when the cry is heard. Behold the bridegroom. And then gathering up our empty lamps And then go out and try to get filled with the Holy Spirit. It's too late then. We can't keep Christ apart from our lives now. And when the cry is heard, then try to make him part of our lives and be fitted for companionship with him. It's not possible. And so we have a decision to make at 20 after 12. Will you allow the Lord... To make your robe spotless. Will you allow him to give you his righteousness? Clothe you with his righteous robes. uh, To purify your character. See, it's not a magic trick that God does where you're evil and he makes you pure. Or you're a, a sinner and he just purifies you. It's not magic. He declares you righteous and then he makes you righteous. And we have to cooperate with him and allow him to do that. It's not something that we can do on our own. We have to decide to let Jesus do it. And he'll do it. So if that's your decision, I invite you to kneel with me if you're able. Father in heaven, thank you for the teachings of Jesus and for all of these red Uh, words and verses and chapters in our Bibles that just uh, 
show so much uh, to us if we're willing to look and to learn. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for how clear you have made it. You don't want us to go astray. You want us on that straight and narrow path. You're the great shepherd. You're the one that we need to follow. And you will guide us in to your heavenly kingdom. Uh, Lord, we're like immediately drawn to the wide road. It's a natural thing because of our sinful natures. And I just pray, Lord, that each of us would surrender that to you now and, and then allow you to direct our path, to keep us on the straight and narrow, to make the changes that definitely need to be made. Um, you'll reveal those things to us. Help us not to fight against you. Uh, there are sins that we cling to that you need uh, us to surrender. Help us to do that. May there be a great reformation in each of our hearts. And then there'll be a revival in your church. Lord, bless each person here. Thank you for our visitors that are here today, um, for all of our members. Bless them in a special way. May this prayer uh, that they have prayed today fall upon your merciful ears, and may you do a work that only you can do. We'll give you the praise and the glory, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.